Proverbs 30 says this, three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. Fire absorbs, fire burns, it consumes, it destroys, and it eats whatever, virtually anything you feed to it. Let me tell you about a time when I saw that firsthand. (laughs) So I was this youth pastor, right, in um, Orange County, and I was in my, like, young 20s, and we did these bonfires with youth group at Huntington Beach um, pretty regularly throughout the summer. So youth group would just go, and we'd have this bonfire, and we'd do worship, and we'd have a Bible study. And so I was in charge, of course, the youth pastors do everything. Um, I was in charge of building the bonfire. So I kept this collection in a brown paper bag of um, documents and receipts that I didn't want to just throw away for like identity reasons. So I'm like, you know what, rather than shredding these, these are be great fire starters. So I collected them and kept them so that when we went to the beach, I would take this brown paper bag and I would, as I was building the fire, I would stuff it, you know, with these and light these receipts and these bills and these papers and whatever I didn't need. And um, it, it works, you know, it works pretty well. Well, this one particular evening, um, I'd done this a few times, but I, I, I stuffed it with this throwaway paper and we lit it and it was burning and there's you know there's about a dozen of us looking at fire because fire does that right it attracts people and you just kind of get mesmerized and you stare into it and like we're all like looking at each other but we're not we're looking at the fire but we feel together in it somehow and there's like a dozen of us around the fire and uh i'm i'm just kind of feeding it with the the rest of what's in my brown paper bag and suddenly three rectangular sheets of green paper are noticed on the very top of this burning heap of paper. And we're all, I just kind of stop. I'm like, that looks kind of like a $100 bill. <laughs> and it wasn't just one. There was at least three of them. And we're, we're looking at this, and it is almost like just like we're all like not sure we're really seeing this. And there's this moment within me where I had this impulse to do whatever it took to rescue those bills. But I had, the, you know, the sense of like, um, what can you do? Ha ha, ha ha. And everyone's like, you're an idiot. What in the world are you doing throwing $100 bills in the fire? And I still to this day have no idea how they ended up in that brown paper bag, except that there they were. And I'm just mindlessly throwing paper in there and money. It was, um, yeah, I lost status, I guess, in the eyes of my youth group. Uh, but that's when I realized that fire costs something. It does. Most of the time it costs wood. That's what it takes to keep it going. But sometimes it costs 300 or so dollars. Fire attracts. It does. 
I mean, we know that it's just way back, you know, to ancestors before civilization had a whole lot. Just fire was the main gathering place for warmth and for light and for community. Fire attracts, not just literally, but in a, in a more metaphorical sense too. Fire is something we use to describe passion. It's something we describe, we use to describe things that we just have to do. I have a fire. I burn for this cause. Or if I don't, preach, Jeremiah said. It's like a fire in my bones, so I have to preach. And fire drives us, just like it drives vehicles and jets. Fire also drives the soul to go and pursue and to do. The problem is, is that fire, not all fires are safe. And fire, when put in the wrong place, can cost more than just wood to keep it going. It can start to consume your money, It can start to consume your relationships. It can start to consume your faith. Fire absorbs, it burns, it consumes, it destroys, it eats whatever is in its path. And it can be dangerous. My question is, are there fires that don't cost us anything? Are there fires that will blaze and flame without burning and consuming? So in Exodus, we have this happening. So Pastor Mike ended Genesis was showing you how Joseph ended up in Egypt, betrayed by his brothers, raises up by God's work to become one of the kings of Egypt. And then his dad, Jacob, and his brothers, uh, Jacob's sons and Joseph's brothers, they have a famine in their land. They come down, realize, oh, hey, Joseph, we thought you were dead. Oh, nice to see you now that you can kill us and your king. We need food. And Joseph forgives them and lets the family come in. He gives them land. There's about 70 people that move down into Egypt. Well, when you end Genesis chapter 50 and turn your page to Exodus chapter 1, you are turning 400 years in a single turn. So, you know, meanwhile, like a lot of Things have happened and time has gone. 400 years turns that 70 people into 400 times that size. Don't add it. I don't know what that literal number is. But they just grow. A lot has happened. So a different pharaoh's in charge. doesn't remember Joseph and the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Israelites. And so this new pharaoh sees this, this exponentially growing people and decides, this isn't good. They are quickly numbering us Egyptians, and it seems like they're never going to stop growing. So let's do something about this, because if we don't pin them down, they will rise up against us and take over. So Egypt does what all kings of empires do. They oppress people. They put people in their place to keep power. So Pharaoh enslaves these people, the Israelites, the people of Abraham. He puts them to forced labor, and they, through their blood, sweat, and tears, build for him cities and monuments, everything to make Pharaoh look great. Well, they still keep growing. So he has this idea of, all right, let's have the midwives, the women who come to deliver the babies, to kind of twerk the head without the mother knowing at birth. I'm sorry, it was a stillbirth. 
So that's the plan. Well, the midwives fear God, it tells us. So they did not do anything to the babies. They let them be born. They let them live. And Pharaoh's like, why are they still multiplying? Like, you don't understand. Egyptians are weaklings. These Hebrew women, man, before we even get in the door, they've delivered their own baby and they're nursing that baby. We can't even get in there in time. So that's their excuse to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh then has to say, fine. We are going to, by force, kill all the children, all the males. We're going to kill them so that they can't keep multiplying. So Moses becomes our main character in the book of Exodus. He is a Jew. He is from Israel, from the people of Abraham. He is born at the time that Pharaoh is slaughtering the baby boys. So Moses' mother sees him and says, oh my goodness, this is something special about this child. Now, every mom says that. So I'm not sure if she was just, you know, of course there's something special about this kid or if there really was something that she saw about him. But whatever it was, she said, I am not going to let this baby fuel the fire of this empire. I'm going to put him in a basket and pitch it and throw it down the river. And this wasn't just like, I hope it works out. She knows where the river leads. Everybody knows where their water source is going when you have to go to the river to get it. She knows that this river is going to eventually lead right to where Pharaoh's daughter takes a bath. So she has good confidence that God's going to get it there. And one day, Pharaoh's daughter's taking a bath and a basket bumps into her. Oh, look at that. Oh, it's a baby. And she has compassion on it. And so knowing that it's a Jewish baby and it should be killed, she decides to adopt it anyways. So Moses grows up in the palace of the Pharaoh who sought to kill him. And there he grows up and he, he's trained as a prince. He knows all the, the tricks of royalty. He's powerful. He could possibly be even one of the next in charge. We don't know the details there, but he is part of the powerhouse of Egypt. Then Moses does something very foolish. And he, like you and I, he has this desire, this passion to do something meaningful. He recognizes his roots. I'm not an Egyptian. These are my people that are enslaved. He steps in between an Egyptian who's beating an Israelite. And he says, that's enough. The Egyptian says, oh yeah. And Moses says, yeah. Kills him buries him in the sand, looks around, goes home. He did not know, though, that security cameras caught the whole thing. <laughs> and that evening at dinner, Pharaoh is watching on the 7 o'clock news, Moses kills an Egyptian. He does what? So Moses realizes his life's in danger now, and he has to run. And so he runs into the wilderness where he will be hiding out. A great, powerful prince who now becomes a nobody. Okay. Now, meanwhile, so think about this. 400 years from Genesis to Exodus. 400 years. That, by the way, is the amount of time from the end of the Old Testament to the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. 400 years. Israel is suffering in slavery. We don't know for how much of those 400 years, but for two years of slavery is too much. So they are suffering and they're crying out, who will deliver us? Who will save us? And we read this very beautiful passage. While Moses is hiding out in the wilderness, we read this in Exodus chapter 2. So just the two verses before chapter 3. 
So Exodus 2, verse 23. During, uh, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. So the one who wanted to kill Moses, he's now passed on. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob, the ones we read about in Genesis. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew or he understood. Help us. God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. Even 400 years of silence, 400 years of apparent loneliness and abandonment, they cry out and God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. And you and I sometimes feel burned by mistakes or we have things that are happening that leave us feeling empty or lonely or miserable or we have absolutely no idea where life is taking us. We feel enslaved by some sort of a sin, some sort of an addiction, some sort of a person who just seems to get under our skin and controls us because they know how to press our buttons. And when we cry out, listen, when we cry out, God hears, God remembers God sees, God knows. This is not a God who's floating up in space somewhere in some heavenly celestial place saying, "Woo! I can't wait till everyone joins me because this is awesome, sipping lemonade by the poolside. This is not our kind of God. He's there seeing, witnessing, and understanding, listening to, watching, observing our pains and our hurts and our questions and our doubts. He's not so far away that he's like, oh, that really stinks for you guys. I guess I'll have to figure something out for you. He hears, remembers, sees, and knows. And so as they cry out, God comes down. Do you know that God does that too in your situation? He is there. Adam and Eve have this perfect harmony where God and humans were together. Heaven, God's realm, and earth, humanity's realm were together. There was no such thing as some distinction, like God over there and humans over here, heaven over there, earth here. It was just all one, and it was called Eden. Then there was the pain of divorce and separation after they had turned their back on God. And so then they take earth away from heaven. And so God still controls heaven, but the humans say, we've got the earth. And now earth and heaven don't always talk. And there's moments where they kind of have connection, like in temples or through prophets or through religious experiences, but they're kind of at odds with one another. But then we see with this God in the Bible and with this people, he's never given up on earth. He keeps visiting and he's there and he's trying as much as he can to press in to the earth itself. And when he hears people crying, he's there, he's seeing, he's remembering, he's hearing, and he understands, he knows. So he comes down. And this is what we're going to see in chapter three is what it looks like when he comes 
down, which by the way, is exactly what Jesus does. 400 years of silence as Israel's crying out in their agony of where is our kingdom? Jesus comes down because humans have been groaning forever and ever. And he hears, he remembers, he sees, and he understands. And Jesus brings heaven to earth so that we can be healed, connected, freed, so, let's go. Genesis 3, verse 1. Uh, Exodus 3, verse 1. Now, remember, God, God knows. So, this is what he does. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. Okay, so he runs out to the wilderness. He meets this guy named Jethro. Jethro has a daughter who Moses thinks is, well, not bad. So they get married. And he's like, great, now I've got housing. I've got income. I've got a daughter. I've got this dad who's going to take care of me because he loves his daughter. So Moses finds a free ride out there in the wilderness. Condition, you've got to watch my sheep, Moses. So Moses, once was a prince who controlled things, is now being controlled and is now watching sheep who don't even belong to him. This is worse than being a used car salesman which is no offense to you if you are that. Just made me think of that. So he's doing that, and he takes his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which will later be called Sinai. We're going to see this mountain significantly play in a couple weeks. And the angel of the Lord, verse 2, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Whoa, so God hears, remembers, sees, knows. So he comes down as fire into this bush. Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So Moses is just living another day. You know what I mean? When it's just, it's Monday, it's just another Monday. And day after day, sometimes nothing really unique happens. It's like, okay, another day where nobody cares about me, where I do my best and see all my efforts run into a brick wall and fall to the ground and nobody is there to sweep them up. Like just day after day where that keeps happening. Moses with the same sheep. He's worn a path in the wilderness. He's paved his own road. He's like Caltrans out there, but he's working alone. And so he's taking his lunch break and he's sitting down under a tree to find relief from the blazing, relentless heat. He brings, opens up his brown paper bag, pulls out his PB&J, begins breaking off pieces, cracks open his Diet Coke, takes a sip, and as he sets it down there, or right over the can, he sees something he's never seen before, which is amazing, because in the wilderness where the cactus look the same and the bushes don't really change, and there's sheep and rocks and sheep and rocks, that catches his eye. Something's different here. There's a bush, but it's not like any... It, I think it's on fire, but there's no smoke because it's not being consumed the bush is still green. And he's sitting there and he's eating and he's looking, looks at his sheep, looks at the bush. Still hasn't reduced at all. It's the same size. So he says, I will go and see this amazing sight. So in verse three, Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. Those of you who talk to yourselves, Moses did it too. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see 
when God saw that he turned aside to see. See, God wasn't just going to like slap Moses and say, hey, come over here, buddy. God was just patiently being God, being glorious, dazzling, just being this wonder, and just waiting to see if anybody would notice. Moses notices. How long had God been sitting there waiting for Moses to notice? How many times has God been sitting somewhere waiting for you to walk into a life-changing chapter, but you didn't notice because we've just been so busy thinking about texting or looking up things online, shopping, or thinking about how I'm going to impress the person I'm about to walk into or how that idiot needs to use a turnout because everybody knows Flatlanders should not be driving for more. Yeah. Like how many times do we miss these amazing sights or these moments or these opportunities because we're unwilling to turn aside because we're so distracted with what's in front of us and we're Americans so we rush from point A to point B because well, frankly, life's about how many things you get checked off of your to-do list. How many times do we miss bushes that are aflame with the glory of God? We wouldn't even know. When's the last time you thought about it? Maybe it's happening now next to you, that person. Or maybe it's, that thing you're neglecting that you know you're supposed to do. Or maybe it's just taking a long, quiet stroll with nothing to do other than to let your thoughts nurse you. Moses turns aside. Then God speaks. So when he sees that he turned aside, verse 4, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Twice, of course, because the first time a bush talks to you, you're assuming that's your stomach talking. So the second time he gets his attention and Moses says, I wonder if he's even looking at like, here I am? What, who is that? And then he said, the bush said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Moses, heaven and earth are in harmony here. This is not a place for sandals. So he takes them off. And in verse six, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So here we learn the God of Genesis is the God in Exodus. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. The Moses who knows all of the gods of Egypt, the pantheon, the many gods and their mythologies and their stories of creation and other crazy things that the Egyptians would have. The Moses who knows those things was taught them, maybe taught other people them, is now hiding his face before the God who lives in a bush or at least speaks from a bush. This is great stuff. He is being changed radically. Verse seven, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites. So there's these nations that live in this land and God's saying, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and give you your own land. And it's a fruitful land. Wow. Moses is thinking that's cool, but I left those people a long time ago. And now behold, the cry of my people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Verse 10, come, but you, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. And now you're thinking, okay, I gave up that card a long time ago. I am an immigrant in this wilderness. You know, I'm on the run. I don't belong over there anymore. And I am trying to get away from that person you're telling me to go talk to. I know he died, but this is his son. I probably was in school with him. Like, I don't really want to go visit my past. (laughs) 
You ever feel like that? I talk to a lot of people, by the way, who just get... So the, the mountain's hard because they went to high school here. And they know people now in their you know, 20s who went to high school with them. And they're different than they were then. And it's really hard for them to be with these people. Maybe you can relate. We all live in a small town. We can all relate in some way. And Moses is thinking, I am not going back there. I said good riddance a long time ago. But God is going to be this relentless burning fire in his soul. And going to say, you're going to go. So, 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, which they will do in chapter 19. So, Moses is given these promises and this calling. But this is wild. You've got to imagine, what is Moses thinking? See, he is used to the Egyptian pantheon of gods in which they really don't deal with humans. The gods are there, they're doing their thing, and humans kind of reap the consequences of their bad decisions. That's really what mythology boils down to. All of their stuff kind of gathers down like dust on us, and we have to sneeze it out. So Moses is now dealing with this God who's talking directly to him, relationally. This God who comes to the earth in a bush, and he's going, I cannot believe what's happening. This God knows my life, apparently. He knows my life story, or maybe he doesn't, because he's asking me to do something I cannot do. And so we, we see here this connection where um, you have... We were talking about this God who is not just in heaven and leaving earth to itself, but he sees, he hears, he remembers, and he knows, and he comes. And so here in this bush, which is of the earth, we see this fire, which is obviously of heaven. And it's there co-mingling with the bush of earth. And here we see what we're going to see throughout the Bible is God's continual, relentless pursuit of bringing heaven to the earth to meet with humans, to have relationship with humans, to draw them in to himself because God wants to fill you. The way he fills this bush with fire, God wants to fill us with fire but not the kind of fire that absorbs you or burns you or consumes you or destroys you or eats away at you or reduces your life to ashes. Not that kind of fire, but a kind of fire that fills you and actually makes you more. God is a fire that fills and flows, that gives and grows. He keeps giving, he keeps filling, he keeps flowing, you keep growing because that's the nature of this fire. It is not a consuming, absorbing, destroying fire that eats away at your life. It is a fire that fills you with purpose and passion and power and with his presence so that heaven and earth are commingling within your soul. He wants to fill you the way he filled that bush. And that's why he's inviting Moses here. Come, I want to use you. I want to set you on fire so you can go set Israel on fire and then the world on fire. This is the nature of our God. He not only comes to earth to take on some sort of a form we can relate with, but then he wants to go inside of you so that the world can relate with him via you too. God is a fire who fills and flows and gives and grows. He wants to fill you. Now, 
I have to say that because we often imagine that religion or, or God or Jesus or Christianity or Islam or whatever people think of when they hear God, they imagine that what it is, is this, this person up in this really nice place while we're suffering this really bad place and he puts demands on us because he really doesn't relate to us. There's a distance. There's a gap. And he has these hard demands. And, and we fear that if I follow or if I give myself to this authority, then I am going to be reduced. I'm going to have to give something up or give something away. And then I'm going to be less than who I am. But please don't miss what is happening in this scene is that God inhabits a bush, a highly flammable bush in an arid place. This thing should spark in an instant. He inhabits a bush and yet it does not burn. It is not reduced to ashes. Our God wants to fill you and not reduce you. He wants to complete you. He wants to fill and flow to give and grow. And Moses is starting to catch on a little bit. See, he's not running from this bush. He's asking questions now. Now, he launches into a series of what people usually call excuses. Ah, I'm not your man. I can't do it. He does give one excuse. He ultimately says, God, send somebody else. That's just flat out bailing out. I don't want to do it. But I see here he's sincerely trying to understand who am I talking to? Who am I? Why are you choosing me? Is this possible? And he begins to ask questions because he sees in this bush and in this fire a God he's never encountered and he needs to no. So yes, the questions. And here we get now, so we just read that one question, his first question, who am I? And then God says, it's not about who you are. I will be with you. It's about who I am. Oh, so I'm not alone in this. It's not up to my abilities alone. As long as you're with me, I can rely on you and you're going to work through me. Okay, so that leads him to his second question. If you will be with me, then who are you? You know, he first said, who am I? We often start life that way. Who am I? And it's life is all about trying to make ourselves into something. But somewhere along the line, we realize I'm never going to be enough. And then we have to ask the other question, who are you, God? And what do you want to do with me? And he asks the question. So in verse 13, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What am I to say to them? <laughs> so, okay, you guys remember 400 years of silence. It's like, yeah, yeah, remember Abraham? Oh, I have a fuzzy memory. Yeah, my grandfather said something about him. Well, that God of your great, 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 great grandfather, he visited me. Okay, that desert sun got to your head, Moses. Moses is like, I need answers here, buddy. I need something to give people. So yes, what shall I tell them? So God then does something really remarkable here. And this is why this is some of the most sacred ground in all of scripture is because for the first time, God is going to reveal his personal name to a human. So he says, what is your name? Who shall I say? What shall I say to them? God, verse 14, said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
And then God kind of recounts into what he's going to do with Moses again. You're going to go to Egypt and deliver them, take them to a new land. But this is, okay, okay, what is your name? Who shall I say sent me? And God says, Joseph. Nope. God says, Jesus. Nope. I mean, not yet, right? God gives not a name you're expecting, but I am who I am. Okay, that doesn't really tell me anything. That's what I would have said. Um, I am? This phrase, I am who I am, in my Bible, it's all block letters, all capital letters. And I believe it's every translation kind of goes with that. You'll also notice that in places in the Bible, you'll also see the word Lord in all block capital letters. So anytime you see the word Lord in all block letters, you're seeing this name, I am who I am. It's the same. Um, What happens is that this word, I am who I am, is one word, and it's Yahweh, or some people say Jehovah. It's four Hebrew letters, because they don't have vowels, and the Hebrew people, we don't really know how to say it, because the Jews never said it. They believe that this sacred name of God, the personal name of God, cannot be uttered. So they would usually say Adonai, which means Lord, or Elohim, which means God. Those are just titles you see in your Bible. So whenever you see the word lowercase letters, Lord, or God, those are just titles. His actual name is Yahweh. I am who I am. And here Moses has not just, it's God, somebody I can test and think about and discuss and have opinions and debates and arguments and prove the existence of or the non-existence of. Nope. There's a name here. This being wants a relationship with Moses. And I am who I am speaks directly to the fact that this is a being. It's a relationship. I am, so I exist, but I am who I am. I am pure existence, eternal existence. I am, not I was, I will be, but I am, Moses. I'm inviting you into something way larger than yourself, into this relationship. What we need to remember and be careful of is that in this setting, the I am is the fire and the bush is just a bush. Because we often come to God in the reverse. We would never dare look at that picture and say, of course, we're the fire. And God's the bush. We would never say that in our right minds. But you and I live that way all the time. We come to God like an object. Something that we get to talk about. Something we get to attack. Something we get to latch ourselves onto. And we have opinions and we dissect and we write books of theology. And we have definitions and doctrines. We have all these things to kind of explain who the I am, who I am is. And what actually happens is that the more we try to intricately and detailed make doctrines and definitions, you take the I am who I am, which the point is, this is undefinable. And by defining it, you sort of say, okay, I don't really can't really handle this, but here, this is manageable right here. So we teach doctrines and we have Bible studies and then we make it more and more manageable so that we can understand, which we get. 
We need to have something to grab onto, but we have to remember that what we grab onto is not the fullness of God. That the more we treat God like an object that we can kind of circle and dance around and poke and prod and judge and criticize and have opinions about and prove the existence of and divide over about disagreements about who he is and what he's up to in the world, the more we do that and treat God like an object, the more we are reducing him from relationship to this thing, to this bush that can just be plucked at and smelled and tasted and burnt with fire. And we do this all the time. We've lost the heart of Yahweh the heart of the I am who I am. And this is what we've done in church history. 2,000 years of church history, we were all together once with the Yahweh, the I am who I am. And 1,000 years into this, 1,000 years ago, roughly, the eastern side of the world disagreed with the western side of the world. And both popes met at Constantinople, the city then, and they excommunicated each other. Can you imagine that? I'm in charge here. No, you're in, no, I'm in charge here. No, I am. Well, you're excommunicated. I was just about to excommunicate you too. So they excommunicate each other, and this is what we do. It's probably more even than that. And so we're left with, okay, well, there is one part of the world. We don't talk to those Christians. Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Coptic, the whole Eastern section. How many of you guys deal with Christians like that? They're just totally isolated out there. And so then we're left with the Western part. And then, it's, you know, it's the, it's the one unified, except for the half of it, the one unified church, which Catholic means universal. So they're the universal church. But then a group of people started to have complaints with this church. And so Martin Luther led this change and they disagreed with one another and they split in half once again. And so the Catholic universal church becomes the Roman Catholic church, which I hope you see the irony there. Because if you're Roman, you're not universal. But, you know, there it is. So half of it goes. But hey, hey, they've stayed pretty intact. Give them that. Same with the Eastern Orthodox. But now we've got three parts. And this part, the Protestant Reformation, the part we're part of, well, this has been an ugly story. So here we have, even during this era where it was supposedly all glorious, because now we're finally back to the word of God, there's actually a lot of battles and bloodshed and warfare going on during this time, just to get things to settle down. And then you have over time, and I'm going to mess up a lot of this, but you have things like Puritans over here, and then you have Methodists over here, and then you have Baptists over here. And don't forget that within each of these, there's probably 50 to a dozen different groups within them, so you can break it up even further. And then we have... uh, I, I don't remember what I last said, but let's say Presbyterian. We have um, we have we have Pentecostal, which there you can break up into um, uh, Hillsong. You can break up into um, what's the one that um, Vineyard, right? Yeah, Vineyard broke off from Calvary. Uh, so you got all these, and then you've got over here in England, you got the Anglican Church, and in Ireland they got their Catholic and their other thing. And then here we've got Calvary Chapel, and even within Calvary Chapel right now, there's some people doing this, and so soon like. What is left of the I am who I am? This object that we've poked and prodded and said, we're the fire, you're the bush, we're going to consume and tear you apart. And suddenly it's no wonder if you look at the ashes, we've become this raging fire that has reduced the I am who I am to a heap of ashes. And yet we wonder why America is no longer Christian, why so many youth no longer believe, and why people have, skeptics, uh, have doubts. I mean, doubts are fine, but why agnosticism and atheism are the number one growing belief groups in the world, or at least in the nation. It, it, 
Are you surprised by this? We, we mourn over them. Why can't they believe? Why would they be so angry at God when we fail to realize that we have refused to let God fill us? And we thought we had something to give him. We're the bush. He's the fire. God wants to fill us, but we have to see that he is the I am who I am. He is pure being, pure relationship, and he is only something that can truly be. Yes, you can define that theology, that's fine, but he must be, above all, experienced. As Moses is in front of the bush. I don't know what I thought about you before, but what I'm seeing, I'm taking these sandals off. That's what it should lead us to. So... We come to the New Testament, and Jesus is on the scene. And John the Baptist, who's before him, is preaching. And he's baptizing people with water. But then he says, hey, Jesus is coming real soon. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Yes, there's a fire that absorbs, that burns, that consumes, that destroys, and that eats away everything and reduces life to ashes, but not this fire that's coming. This fire is going to fill you. And Jesus became a, a literal embodiment of the bush that is alive with the flame of God. He goes around and shows us what it looks like when we allow the fire of God to fill us. This is what it looks like. Jesus is what it looks like. The wholeness of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the purity of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the inclusiveness of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus, the ability to change people's lives, that Jesus, that's what it looks like when we let God fill us, the I am who I am, who's beyond my definitions and terms and doctrines, to begin to fill me. And he will never reduce our lives to ashes. Jesus comes and he becomes that model and he's baptizing people with fire and they're getting the contagion. They're getting the affection. They're being filled. And Jesus, just to prove that he is that, says things like, I am the bread of life. Wait, what? I am who I am? Now he's taking this a step further to make it practical for humans and saying, yes, you know the I am who I am, but I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the true door, the true shepherd. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. And what we realize is that in Jesus, he takes the I am who I am and comes to us because he hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. He understands, and he comes down, and he says, I also know that you have needs, and what you need is what I am. I am not who you say I am. Right? That's not what God said. I am what you think I am. I am what you want me to be. No, I am who I am. And then Jesus shows us what it looks like when the I am who I am comes into the lives of human bushes. And there we see, I am what your deepest needs are. So he says, I'm the bread of life to the hungry. I'm the light of the world to the lost. I am the true vine to those that need connection and fellowship and that need to have a sense of the eternal with them. I am joy when you're depressed. I am pleasure when you're bored. I am direction when you're lost. I am light when you're in darkness. I am love when you're lonely. This is what it means to come to God as Moses does. 
Not to say, yes, we are right. We know who you are. And so we're going to tell it to you like, the, it, like it is. And somehow like we are in control of the destiny of God. Now coming to God to be set aflame and ablaze by him without being reduced by him is to let him be for us what we most need. So we need to catch fire. Here's the thing is that we sometimes go over here like, yeah, this fire, we need it. So we try to like do our Boy Scout thing and get flint and stuff. And we try to make a fire happen. Whoa, we have fire. But like, ooh, this is dangerous. Corral it, put it in a fire pit, put it in a fireplace. <laughs> we do this all the time. We try to have revival. We try to work something up. We try to get everybody to love Jesus. And then all you're really doing is you're making your own fire. And they're like, whoa, it's getting out of hand. Let's like make some rules here. We can't make this fire. We can't catch this fire. Like it's something that we can hold and have and distribute at will. It's something that has to be caught. I'm sorry, not, we, we do want to catch it. We don't want to capture it though. We don't want to hold it and say, I'm going to distribute it as I want. It has to be caught. God has to do it. Do you want to catch fire? Do you want to be a bush aflame with the filling life of God? Well... Let's do what Moses does then. One, let's turn aside. Let's learn to turn aside in life. We have routines, we have ruts, we have paths that we've walked through in our wildernesses forever and ever. We have the same sheep, the same bushes, the same trees. You have the same uh, commute to work or the same commute to your computer or to your couch or whatever it is. We have worn paths in our lives. And Moses dared once to turn aside. He dared once to take a detour. We're so into shortcuts, but he took a long cut. What if we turned aside every now and then? Like, we may not be very used to reading the Bible, but what if we turned aside and read the Bible once in a while? What if we turned aside and prayed? And you know what? God is not just a flame alive in the Bible. It's also in a bush. What if you turned aside to creation once in a while and said, God, I want to see every bush in the world filled with the glory of God. Because it is. It is. Because of Jesus' coming, God has shown us he wants to fill even human vessels with this glory of God. Everything is being filled with God. But do we see it? Do we turn aside? Do we stop? Do we wonder? Mary Oliver is um, one of the most uh, famous poets, modern day poets of our time. She wrote this poem which goes, the multiplicity of forms. You have the otter, the fox, the raven, the sparrow hawk. You have the hummingbird, the dragonfly, the water lily, and on and on and on. And then she says, it must be a great disappointment to God if we are not dazzled at least 10 times a day. Oh, when's the last time we turned aside at something around us to be dazzled? Turning aside. Second, we can turn aside. We can practice being the bush. I know it sounds weird, but in our analogy, you see what I mean? We're used to kind of controlling and defining. But what if we stopped doing that with God and we let him define us? Moses, Moses. What if we waited till he called our name? What if we waited for him to say who we are rather than our aggression to be like, this is who God is. God, come hear me. What if we practice that 
patience and just let God give the filling, flowing, giving, growing presence and just received rather than worked up and tried to make happen. We turn aside, we be the bush. And finally, what if we walked shoeless? <laughs> what if we walk, walked shoeless? Moses in the bush or at the bush had to take off his shoes because there God was telling him his holy ground. In other words, heaven's space has made contact with earth's space. And I don't want anything getting in the way of that. We can't carry our shepherd identities or our prince identities into this space. We have to let that go and we have to go to a place where we can't just run away. We can't just be quickly like, that was really cool. When's he going to be done preaching? And then yes, dessert time. We can't just be like that with God. We have to sometimes walk the earth shoeless because God moves very slowly. You ever notice that? Man, we're always telling, saying, why God, when, hello, he moves slow. What if we actually took our sandals off or our shoes off and walked at his pace? Maybe we would linger a little bit more in his presence. Maybe we would be more aware of what he's doing because we weren't so busy trying to outrun Bozo over there. Like Peter and John trying to race each other to the garden tomb. They didn't see the risen Lord because they were running to find him. But Mary, who stayed behind and wept, was the one who recognized Jesus as the gardener. Do you remember that? She walked shoelessly. What if we tried that too? Now, please, some of you are like, I'm not being literal. <laughs> just talking about a pace of life, a willingness to just soak in. We often, and I face this temptation all the time. I love to read. I think reading is very important for my, uh, just who I am and for just being able to do my job. I love reading. And I, I have this urge to just finish books. I just have to finish them. And you always, my, my to read list is growing so much faster than my read list. So it's just always this pressure to just race through the book. And I'm often just halted by, why am I reading to race? What is the point? If I'm just flushing knowledge into me, why don't I just dwell on this as if it's the best thing I've ever read? Why don't we just soak things in? We, we want to binge watch show after show, which is fine. Um, but what if we actually just like, sometimes that's just mindless consumption. What if we actually just said, wow, and just let something marinate in us for a while? Yes, I mean, even just a TV show. I mean, times it happens when you have kids and you see the same movie over and over and over. So you get the chance to let it marinate. But like so many times I'm just like, wow, that like, that's a powerful message. That if you just change that name to Jesus, the whole thing is just the Bible right there. Uh, what if we just took our shoes off and just let our toes sink into the sand? I think then we will find ourselves filled with the fire of God. The fire that fills and flows and gives and grows, not the fire that reduces us to ashes. So the worship team is going to come up and we're going to do communion, uh, take communion In which is a chance for us to, we believe we're not receiving the literal Jesus. It's, it's a symbol, but we're inviting by faith him into our lives as we take this. And we're saying, let your fire fill, flow, give, and grow.
let's let God be the fire and us the bush. And let's see if he won't catch, if we won't catch fire just by lingering in his presence a little bit. 